Hello, my name is Rick Napier, the founder at Real People USA. You can reach us at rpusa.org or you can call us at area code 602-805-7000. Today's podcast episode is with Dr. Colleen Huber. She's a naturopathic medical doctor in the state of Arizona. And we're going to have a conversation about the 1918-1919 Spanish flu. So without further delay, I would like to introduce Dr. Colleen Huber. And Dr. Huber, can you give people just a quick bio on your yourself, your license and credentials? Hello, Rick. It's good to be uh, speaking with you again. And uh, I'm a naturopathic medical doctor. And this is, um, uh, people are not familiar with that very often. Uh, naturopathic physicians are trained in four-year medical schools. That's our medical doctors. But we have twice as many courses, twice as many classroom hours because we're trained in all of conventional medicine plus natural medicine such as nutrition, botanical medicine, physical medicine, etc. So, uh, which is like chiropractic. Um, anyway, that's uh, that's what I do, and I'm in Tempe, Arizona. I've been doing that 15 years now. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so today's uh, podcast episode is about this um, this this uh, finding that not just you found or that you discovered. Other people have been talking about this for the last probably two months. When I first heard about the Spanish flu link to some of the legal precedents behind the mandatory vaccinations. Can you tell our listening audience what you have discovered uh, based on looking back perhaps to 2007, 2008? Yes, uh, I had actually come across um, a research article that was done by Dr. Anthony Fauci and two other researchers. They published a paper in 2008 in which they had examined tissue samples from people who had died during the so-called Spanish flu. I say so-called because uh, we could talk about it if like about it, why it's neither Spanish nor the flu. Anyway, uh, they had dug up, um, you know, these tissue samples of the people who had died. And then when they looked at them microscopically, they found that bacterial pneumonia was the cause of death for every single individual that they examined. And um, they found that the death was resulting directly from common upper respiratory bacteria. And um, actually, I, I uh, tweeted that at the time because that, that article had not been considered controversial previously. I don't know if uh, it had been widely discussed previously, but I pointed out in a tweet at that time, that was October of 2020, I pointed out that uh, that was the last time historically that Americans had experimented with mask wearing, all day mask wearing. Now we know that masks uh, drive up the level of bacteria that are in and around your mouth, nose, lungs, and places where you do not want to be breathing and incubating um, warm, moist environment for excessive bacterial growth. Yet that is exactly what happens when we wear a mask. And um, my research team and I uh, did a paper on this about m microbial dysbiosis. In other words, uh, really extremely high levels of, you know, bacteria that can cause problems that happen when you wear a mask. It's been found over the course of time that you wear a mask, you are breathing out more bacteria because you're incubating more on the inside of a face mask. Uh, when European commuters, train commuters, were given a brand new mask at the beginning of their train ride and the masks were collected an hour later, it 
they had grown an average of 100,000 colonies of bacteria on each of these new masks just within that hour. We also know, the research has also shown, that masked surgeries result in more infections to the patients than unmasked surgeries. But this is one of those things that's just kind of become a commonly accepted uh, habit and uh, you know, a surgeon not wearing a mask these days would feel undressed. It's just kind of like if you get used to wearing a watch, you feel naked without it. So uh, this is kind of part of the problem going on. I think that we that many people become so used to wearing their masks that even without thinking about uh, the health hazards of doing so, if they're going to run into the supermarket, hey, where is that mask hanging from my rearview mirror? Or you know, deep down in the in the recesses of the purse or the wallet or the pocket, you know, let me put on that mask because that's part of being dressed now for going into the supermarket. I think if, you know people have come to accept, but there are health hazards associated with it. Yeah, exactly, and that does not include me, and I know it doesn't include you where you think the mask right. is part of your daily uniform. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is so correct. I, uh, I really worry about uh, people wearing masks. The reason I got interested in the first place is I'm actually a naturopathic oncologist, and the last 15 years I've been working with cancer patients. Well, one thing we know about cancer, in 1931, Dr. Otto Warburg won the Nobel Prize for showing that cancer begins with a loss of oxygen. When oxygen is deprived, that is in the environment necessary for the first cancer cells to form. Now, I happen to know from treating both kinds of disease that COVID is very easy to treat, really easy. Um, you have the proper tools uh, such as ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or even better, vitamin D prior to that, and you can beat COVID in any age group very easily. However, cancer is extremely difficult to beat. So then I saw people starting to wear a mask about a year and a quarter ago. I thought, oh no, what are they doing? This is not a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> we have been, we have experienced uh, like a, a smorgasbord of, of Fauci lies. And I know when yes. we first talked, I think this is the, like your fourth podcast episode where you have, where you started just identifying lie after lie and not just with hyperbole from your end, you know, scientific data, study, you know, lots of papers that have been written either by yourself or by others to dispute pretty much everything that he said about uh, the COVID-19 vaccine and, and the mask. Um, I know we probably don't have time to review all those lies because we probably probably have a podcast episode lasting a couple of hours. But <laughs> Right. He sold so much fiction. There's so much fiction. You've got to counteract it with a lot of nonfiction. Yeah, we probably can go back to the 1980s when it comes to Fauci, but we don't have that time. Yeah. But I think the reason why I wanted to have this podcast episode is to talk about potentially how all these forced vaccinations and this, this, this forced mandate is causing people to make drastic decisions to their personal lives, to their employment, to their financial life. And uh, what do you think about this 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 revelation about the Spanish flu and how perhaps uh, the, the administration is trying to use the 1918 Spanish flu as a backdrop as as legal precedents to force these vaccinations on Americans. 
Oh, yes. And, um, you know, that, uh, that is actually, uh, quite a mistaken thing to do because, because that was mainly, um, not the flu and it was, and it certainly didn't have anything to do with Spain. Uh, then, and it was misnamed from the beginning. Uh, there were a number of problems. Uh, not only uh, was the problem of what uh, Dr. Fauci's research team found, and I'm accepting those findings that uh, they saw bacterial pneumonia as a major cause of death, but now they had been giving a very um, highly toxic and experimental bacterial meningitis vaccine at that time. And a lot of people were uh, having poisonous effects from that vaccine. So, uh, you know, when it was lumped together and labeled as Spanish flu, that was very uh, deceptive. So that, that was one thing that was going on at the time. But, you know, this idea of vaccine mandates and whether they can be given, um, people have also pointed to the 1905 Jacobson versus Massachusetts case. And they say, well, Jacobson was required to take a smallpox shot and the case made him do it. That was not the findings of the Supreme Court. That The Supreme Court told Jacobson, you can either get the smallpox shot or pay a $5 fine. So Jacobson never did get the shot. He opted to pay the $5. So I looked it up. What is that in today's dollars? I think it was something like $135 in today's money. Something like that, uh, you know, it was on that order. Jacobson himself absolutely did not want the smallpox shot because he had had a vaccine as a child and uh, it almost killed him. And so he definitely didn't want it. Uh, but that was the option that the Supreme Court gave him and that was the solution that he chose. So he did never have to get the vaccine. And also, many would argue that um, a, a lot has transpired since that time. I mean, if we learned anything from World War II in the intervening years, so I think we learned that medical procedures must never, ever be forced on individuals. We learned that all over again from Tuskegee. Medical procedures must never be enforced, you know, forced. And, um, you know, because uh, we've learned this, the Nuremberg Code really enshrines these principles. In fact, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights also came out of World War II time, right? And uh, the, uh, Section 3 says every person is guaranteed the right to life, um, liberty, and security of person. So I, I interpret security of person as nobody's allowed to inflict a medical procedure on me that I do not accept. And, um, okay, so one might say, well, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that's not going to hold up in a court of law. Okay, but I think we do have plenty of uh, constitutional principles that would hold up very well in a court of law. One, um, we know that an executive order such as by Biden cannot override the U.S. Constitution. And the U.S. Constitution, you know, uh, 14th Amendment guarantees uh, equal protection, you know, uh, concepts of life, liberty um, are, are guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution. And uh, actually, uh, legally, I probably shouldn't argue, well, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, nor should I pretend to uh, have any knowledge. I probably only know enough to make the wrong arguments. But uh, I, I don't think um, an executive order, oh, I can quote one Supreme Court case, Marbury versus Madison, 5 U.S. 137, and in which it was determined that any new law or executive order or executive action that is repugnant to the Constitution is null and void. So if, if uh, say, Biden makes an executive order that we all have to get vaccines, but the Constitution protects us against that, 
well, his executive order has been null and void uh, because of that Supreme Court case, which has never been, you know, overturned or... Um, so anyway, I I do think that, that that is a strong defense that we have. Mm -hmm. So what, how do you feel or what do you think about the HIPAA laws where uh, a lot of Americans are basically saying, you know, the HIPAA law of, because I remember I was in corporate America when the HIPAA law came out and I worked in the health uh, insurance uh, industry where there, there were so many measures taken to protect a person's medical privacy. What do you think, how do you feel about the, about, uh, the current administration trying to override HIPAA by getting people to disclose their medical history uh, without, under coercion, I must say? Oh, yes. I, I think that's absolutely wrong and probably untenable, and I don't think they'll get away with it. But HIPAA has another ally, uh, also from the Constitution, because the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution prohibits unreasonable search and seizure. So um, if our privacy is protected by the Fourth Amendment, then that is a, another kind of, uh, I, I probably shouldn't discuss legal terms because I don't know how to do so correctly, but I think that's kind of a legal ally of HIPAA, sort of, you know, uh, your privacy is protected by that as well. Excellent, excellent. And I know that you had an incident there in Arizona where a rogue medical board was trying to get you to uh, release medical documents on your patients. Can you talk briefly about that? Because I know you have a lot to do today, but I want to you know, just hear your thoughts on this 1918 Spanish flu case. What has been the history in your city with uh, the rogue medical board trying to force you to release documents on your patients. Oh, that was very interesting. <clears throat> okay, so there are some people on the medical board for whom um, they have actually uh, tried to violate uh, several state, uh, federal, and constitutional laws, including antitrust law, to try to attack my clinic, but they have a little problem. No patient and no patient's family member has ever, ever brought a complaint that I ever caused harm. So the board has a little bit of a difficulty in trying to like target and commit targeted harassment. That hasn't stopped them. They've uh, gone about it uh, pretty steadily for the last three, four years now. Okay, so then what happened was they wanted to attack. So they said, okay, well, we're gonna, uh, we're, we're gonna rewrite your, we're gonna tell you how to rewrite your chart notes. So give us, give us hundreds of pages of patient chart notes. All right, I thought, well, the only way I can do this without violating my patient's rights is I cross out all their names, date of birth, cell phone number, even lab ID numbers, every possible identifying number that we could possibly find. The whole thing was, you know, basically inked out a lot of it to get rid of that information. Okay, here's your hundreds of pages. Then a patient says to me one day, how come you're missing all these days at the go to these board meetings, I said they are trying very hard to attack because they're very angry that I am opposed to, well, one, that I offer natural treatments for cancer because a lot of them are tied into the chemotherapy industry. However, recently they've accelerated their attacks because I speak out against masks and vaccines and they really don't like that. So uh, they're trying to attack me. They're looking any way they can. And so that's why they demand patient chart. And she says, wait a minute. They demand our chart notes, 
that is a total invasion. I said, don't worry, don't worry. I'm crossing out your name and, you know, crossing out your date of birth, crossing out every... She said, wait a minute, that is still a violation of our medical information. They are using that for wrong purposes. I said, oh my gosh, I agree with you. That is a violation of the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution. You're absolutely right. So the patients got together, 20 of them, and we just took the first 20. We didn't want to make it a huge thing, but because we figured 20 is enough. And besides, we're just a little clinic, you know? Okay, so 20 patients got together, put a petition, say, stop doing that. Stop abusing our medical records in order to pursue this targeted harassment against doctors because another doctor was getting involved now. Um, they were trying to go after another doctor too. And stop doing that because you're doing it for wrong purposes. Well, that, uh, at least for now, has put an end to it. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe the board was going to try to, you know, let things die down and go after and try to pursue it later. But for right now, uh, they really haven't done anything except kind of grumble. Uh, but they didn't say anything. They didn't do anything since then. Excellent. And my last question I have for you, and you can also talk about how, I mean, your practice and everything. But you wrote this paper about... Uh, three or four months ago, I believe. And it was a very exhaustive, uh, very uh, complete document on many different things regarding health. And I believe it was related to COVID-19 or something re related to health. Can you talk about that briefly, especially if it's something the listeners should know about and they can read for themselves? Um, are you talking about the book that I wrote, The Defeat of COVID? I, yes. I wrote that. Um, yes, oh, that's yes. it. So <clears throat> my book, The Defeat of COVID, is on Amazon. It's also on Barnes & Noble. Well, on Amazon, it's on Kindle and paperback. And what it is, is that so far, I think it's a roadmap out of this pandemic. Because it talks about, and, and it talks about in just plain ways that people can put to use right away, how vitamin D is and taken in a preventive way is your best ally against uh, COVID. But once you already have COVID, really helpful things are ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, zinc. Um, these are things that are so helpful uh, to get people over a case of COVID oh, and our vitamin C. And I talk about how each one of them works. Ivermectin is just perfect against COVID. You know, I mean, it has just worked uh, so well. It's uh, as if it was made for COVID. In fact, I went and gave a speech on it last week at the American Academy of Environmental Medicine. And uh, I was talking to them about how, how well COVID works. And many of the doctors in the room agreed with me because they had been using it themselves and seeing people get well very quickly. It's very unfortunate. It's been, uh, you know, maligned as horse dewormer because it won the Nobel Prize for uh, biochemistry in 2015. It's been used 4 billion doses have been given around the world because through tropical areas, this has been very valuable as an antiparasite. And so granted, using it against the virus is off-label, but it turns out for the off-label use, it's got wonderful mechanisms. So it's been used for decades with humans, and um, you know, it, the safety profile is really excellent. It's been safe all the way down to toddlers. Uh, none of the pregnant or breastfeeding mamas had uh, lost the pregnancies. There was no uh, safety issues there in the safety trials, and it did have a lot of safety trials as opposed to the current vaccines out there. So, oh, yes. yeah, I, I talk about that in the book. Well, I'll tell you what, I want to thank you for your time today. And just on a side note, Roxana says hello, and she's real close to making a decision. She's already been selected for a state role, but she's thinking about doing the federal 
congressional thing, but she really enjoyed meeting with you. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed meeting with her so much. And I've been meaning to get back to her, but I just uh, avalanche through the tsunami of stuff because I was away uh, speaking at the conference. I came back to a whole mountain of things on my desk. So. <laughs> All righty. So anyway, I want to thank um, uh, Dr. Colleen Huber, a naturopathic uh, doctor there in the Phoenix metro area. And Dr. Huber, thanks for your time today. I am so delighted to speak with you again. It's just always a delight to speak with you, Rick. Thank you. All right, then. Make it a great day.